Kevin Markwick. That's a bingo. Can't say fairer than that. From 1972, David Bowie and, of course, Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars, the rise and fall of... Which, which is uh, just to indicate that we are now in 1972. Don't take my word for any of this, because I was only 10... I was mostly nine through most of 72. It was my birthday last Sunday, yesterday. So, hello and welcome to 1972. It's Kevin Markwick here and we're going through cinema of the 70s week by week. A year of some quite horrible goings on. Bloody Sunday. The Munich Olympic disaster. And Greece opened on Broadway. The band ABBA was formed. 
and the video game Pong made an appearance. At the cinema in Uckfield, it was the usual hodgepodge of the old and new, although still more old than new, if I'm honest. We'll be hearing from uh, Rota de Rossini and Fonda de Friedkin and from Bond to Banjos. Doesn't quite work, does it? Not as a theory, anyway. So, the decline in British cinema and cinemas. For they are two different things. Continued at an alarming rate. And 1972 saw a total of 156 million admissions in the UK, down from 176 million the year before. And that decline will continue all the way to 1984 when it hit the all-time low of 54 million admissions. Oh man, this music's spot on. So count yourself lucky that Outfield still has a cinema, frankly. And why was this happening? Because the people running it, actually, this is the music they live their lives to. It's the music from Please Sir, which actually played in January 72. One of the terrible sitcom films that we had to put up with. Yep, the cinemas were crap and the films were crappier. That's not entirely true, of course. There were good things. But if you've been following the show so far, you'll know we had to put up with a lot of this dross. John Alderton. It was a sort of half-arsed remake of To Serve With Love, really. And it was pants. I've got the figures somewhere, but I forgot to write them down. Anyway, people came to see it. What can you do? I don't know. Anyway, one bright spot on the box office-wise horizon... It doesn't work either as a sentence, does it? Was Clint Eastwood as Dirty Harry, which, depending on your politics, was either an indictment of police brutality or a right-wing polemic about the need for police freedom to fight crime. Anyway, uh, I think it did. I think it was. Anyway, anyway, it contained this iconic dialogue and a great score from Lalo Schifrin. I know what you're thinking. Did he fire six shots or only five? Tell you the truth in all this excitement, I've kind of lost track myself. But Ian, this is a 44 Magnum, the most powerful handgun in the world, and would blow your head clean off. You've got to ask yourself one question. Do I feel lucky? Well, do you, punk?
Lalo Schifrin's music for Dirty Harry, 1972. You're listening to Kevin Markwick. It's Uckfield FM on a Monday night, mate. Um, and, yeah, we're going through 1972. This is what I'm doing every week. I am, uh, well, I started with 1970. <laughs> i got 13 weeks, though. That's what's worrying me. And I don't know. I only got a CSE grade two maths, but I think there's only 10 years in a decade. So if we've got any ideas what we should do with the last three as we lead up to Christmas, uh, let me know. Uh, so one of the bright spots, box office-wise, um, was Clint Eastwood uh, as Dirty Harry. Um, Harry Callahan would go on to appear in a total of five movies, actually. I seem to remember enjoying Magnum Force, the next one more than this. But hey, what do I know? Uh, it was released in 1971 in the US, but not until 72 in the UK. Uh, it played upfield on June the 11th for seven days. I don't have the figures for that because we're missing, we're missing the middle of 70, uh, 72. Uh, yeah, the end of 71 to the middle of 72 for some reason. Don't know why. Either the book's got lost or he just got fed up writing these terrible numbers down. <laughs> One or the other. Uh, okay, something altogether lighter now. Um, Peter Bogdanovich was on a roll in the early 70s between the brilliant Last Picture Show and the equally wonderful Paper Moon was the zany Barbara Streisand and Ryan O'Neill comedy What's Up Doc? Words poetic, I'm so pathetic that I always have found it best Instead of getting it off my chest To let him rest unexpressed I hate parading my serenading as I'll probably miss a bar. But if this ditty is not so pretty, at least it'll tell you how great you are. You're the top, you're the Coliseum, you're the top. You're the Louvre Museum You're a melody from a symphony by Strauss You're a pentabonnet, a Shakespeare sonnet You're Mickey Mouse You're the Nile You're the Tower of Pisa You're the smile I'm a worthless check, a total wreck of love. Honey, baby, I'm the bottom, you're the top. You're the top, you're my half, my gandy. You're the top. You are Napoleon Brandy You're the purple light of a summer night in Spain You're the National Gallery of Barbara's Salary You're Cellophane You're Sublime You're Turkey I'm a toy balloon that is faded soon to 
tell you. What is it, Judy? Well, um, you're the top. I am? Mm, you're Waldorf Salad. Oh, oh, no, no, let me say it. You're the top. Me too? That's right. You're a Berlin Ballet. Oh, that's nice. You're the nimble tread of the feet of Fred Astaire. Actually, I don't dance very well. You are an O'Neill drama. You're Whistler's mother. Mama, Sorry. you're You're a rose. Mm, sweet. You're Inferno's Dante. That's a beautiful reference. You're the nose. Watch it. I mean, what, I mean, what? Uh, what, what, well, on the great Durant. Oh, that's better. I'm a lazy lout who is just about to No, it's great fun, isn't it? What a voice. Uh, Barbara Streisand and Ryan O'Neill, who has no voice whatsoever from the soundtrack. That was actually the opening credits and the end credits of What's Up Doc, which uh, premiered in London uh, August 1972 and played in Uckfield on September the 24th. Yeah, not too late. That's quite quite speedy from what we've been doing the last couple of years. Uh, for seven days, 902 admissions. A bit disappointing. Uh, looking at the numbers, it was the midweek business that let it down. Um, I do remember seeing it on a, on the Saturday afternoon, so that would have been Saturday, September the 30th. Mm, I do remember laughing a lot. It's a kind of zany knockabout comedy, and the big chase sequence at the end is... I think still hilarious. I think I fancy seeing that again, actually. I've not seen it for a while. A great cast, uh, not just Streisand and O'Neill, but comedy greats like Madeleine Kahn in her first film, actually, and uh, the wonderful Kenneth Mars. It was a genuinely warm homage to the screwball comedy. Uh, um, yeah. So when we come back, uh, another one of those films that took yonks to come to Oakfield. Here's something for everyone. Science made in a cup. For everyone, Lion's Mane On a stick For everyone, Lion's Mane Here's Chalk Ice For everyone, Lion's Mane It's ice cream time with Lion's Mane Kevin Markwick Final fight Upfield FM Upfield FM Is the coach coming in? Coming in! Coming in! Coming in! Coming in!
there's a coach coming in. Hurry, hurry, do you hear? With a car, go a joy from Paris. Drop the tables and chairs, get them beds up the stairs, and be sure every lock has a key. There's a coach coming in. From Paint Your Wagon. Massive flop for Paramount. Absolutely tanked. From who will have to go somewhere to get them. Yes, but we were still playing it for the first time in 1972, despite the fact it had been premiered in London in 1970. Go figure. It was a big film for Paramount, but ooh. It was one of the films that made Clint Eastwood set up his own production company because he just he just saw so much waste and wanton excess that he always vowed he would then he formed Malpaso and then made his own films pretty much after this and one of the other ones we're gonna do later. I'm running horribly late already. Anyway, it played uh September the 24th for seven days, 902 admissions. No, that was What's Up, Doc? It's not going very well, is it? <laughs> I haven't got the numbers because it's the bit that's missing. But what's inter interesting to me is it was one of the few times we actually went to the cinema as a family. That happened very rarely in my family, as you can imagine. A bit like Coles to Newcastle. But we went... Uh, the four of us at the time, uh, it would have been the four of us, yeah, 1970, 71, uh, to the Astoria Cinema in Brighton because it was in 70 mil there. It was the first time I ever saw 70 mil. And they used to have two projection boxes in there, one for the 35 mil projectors and one for the 70. And I do remember really clearly they ran out of a cartoon in 35, a little picture, and then when the curtains came back and the big 70 mil screen, it did look, um, it was actually quite overwhelming. So I would have been about, what, eight or nine at the time. But I can't imagine, actually, there was more than two or three times in my entire life that we actually went to the pictures as a family, which is a bit weird, isn't it? Anyway, um, also, it actually, uh, I noticed in the book that it, it started on Thursday, so it played for two weeks, Paint Your Wagon, which is already considered a box office disaster. But I think he must have been... Um, experimenting with Thursday change or something. I don't know why. I think we maybe have had a cinema in Eastbourne at the time which was on Thursday change. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about. Anyway, um, I did promise I'd try and get some Ken Russell in every week. <laughs> so if What's Up Doc was Peter Bogdanovich's love letter to Lubitsch, then The Boyfriend was uh, Ken Russell's love letter to Busby Berkeley.
Boyfriend was a multi-layered take on Sandy Wilson's Flapper musical that also plays homage to the Hollywood backstage musicals of the 1930s. You know, like 42nd Street and Gold Diggers of 33 and all that. Where the young girl has to go out there and come back a star. But it also comments on how all of these things were viewed by us Brits, I think, rather cleverly, by framing the whole thing at a mostly empty matinee performance in a rundown repertory theatre in southern England. So it's this rather sort of horribly rainy, depressing outward world. And then the musical opens up with the musical numbers start and it all goes all Busby Berkeley. The musical score was interpreted by Peter Maxwell Davis. It was released in the UK in 1972 and played uh, in February 72 and played on October the 9th for six days. 541 admissions. Not up to much really, was it? But I was going to get some Ken Russell in there somewhere. Do forgive me if I'm meandering. <laughs> I feel I'm slightly losing control this evening of my usually, you know, iron grip on my narrative. Matron. There are no carry-ons either this week, so I didn't even need to say that. I mean, there are carry-ons in the book, but I just decided not to talk about them. But do let me know if you're out there. I know Dave King's out there. Hi, Dave. And do get in touch with the show. You can hit me up at Kevin Mark Quick. Let me know what you think. Were you going to the cinema in 72? Do you remember 1972? Do you remember the cinema in Uckfield in 1972? That would be even more amazing. Either way, it'd be nice to hear from you. Now, here's another film that took two years to roll into Uckfield. Playing March the 12th for seven days, Clint Eastwood again. And this is the film I was saying was one of the last ones uh, he did for a big studio for uh, MGM, the big-budget World War II action comedy Kelly's Heroes. It remains almost insufferably blokish, actually, but would keep turning up every now and again for the next five years, which is why I mention it. It was another sort of 70 mil thing. Uh, released in the US in June 1970. I haven't got any numbers, actually. But, uh, yeah, two years down the line. The score was by our old pal Lalo Schifrin. And the vocals of this slightly strange thing <laughs> were by the Mike Kerb congregation, apparently.
the Mike Kirk congregation, apparently. Uh, the song from uh, Kelly's Heroes, which also had uh, a whole bunch of other people in it. <laughs> Donald Sutherland, he drove the tank, didn't he? Yeah. Anyway, uh, I've got to keep this the old show on time. So um, I'll go into a break now, and when we come back, we will be expecting Mr. Bond. Get with it, young man, get in the swing. Only ice cream is that cool zing. So make the evening a regular ball. Get the refreshment that's got it all. Cool man, like ice cream. Get yours now. Diamonds are forever They are all I need to please me They can stimulate to tease me They won't leave in the night I've no fear that they might desert me Diamonds are forever Stroke it and undress it I can see every part Nothing hides in the heart To hurt me I don't need love For what good will love do me Diamonds never lie to Shirley Bassey, Diamonds Are Forever. You're listening to Kevin Markwick. It's Upfield FM. I'm taking you through the 70s. And tonight it's 1972 in terms of cinema and running a cinema and watching cinema and experiencing cinema. And I've mentioned probably many times before a new Bond was a big event for us uh, specifically and British cinema in general. Not only was it a chance to make some money, it was a chance to add another one to the pile. 
because there was big rerun money in James Bond 2 in those days. We were always replaying them. So another new one, it was another one. To, we did double features, a lot of double features, actually. We'll talk about those later. Uh, after the rather strange experience that was on Her Majesty's Secret Service and the rather petulant behaviour of George Lazenby, Broccoli and Saltzman doubled down and ponied up a tonne of cash to bring back Sean Connery. Uh, I have to say, Diamonds is actually one of my favourites. Charles Gray... Um, as a not-at-all-bald Blofeld is a bit weird. He doesn't feel like Blofeld at all, really. But it has good car chases and some classic Bond zingers. Don't do your Sean Connery, Kev. Uh, no. Delivered with relish by Connery, who seemed to be enjoying himself, actually, in the film. I thought, anyway. Um, it was a big hit worldwide, of course. Uh, it premiered in London, December 1971, and played uh, April the 24th, 1972, in Uckville for 13 days. Now, I'm guessing that that, again, was the release schedule, because at that point, 72, we weren't on first week of release. I'm not even sure we were on what was called third week of release then. I'll explain all that as we go along later in other shows. Um... Yeah, but it was 13 days again. It's so weird. Even for Bond, my dad wouldn't have two Sundays the same. Really strange. More of which later. Uh, well, no, it wasn't strange. When I, I'll explain later in the show why uh, that was the case. And John Barry returned for his sixth Bond outing as composer. And actually, here's one of my favourite cues from John Barry's rather wonderful score. It's called Mr. Wint and Mr. Kid and Bond Goes to Amsterdam. Yeah, Mr. Wint and Mr. Kidd, remember them? They were the wonderfully weird assassins.
Mr. Wint and Mr. Kidd and Bond goes to Amsterdam. A cue from John Barry's score for Diamonds Are Forever. Did he ever actually do a bad score for Bond? I don't think so. Let me know. I mean, it was never even an indifferent score. They're kind of what made it, really. They were part of what made it. Um, Oscars Ahoy now. Yep. Jane Fonda won the Academy Award as Best Actress uh, in 72 for her striking performance in Alan J. Pakula's now-acknowledged classic Clute, a dark thriller about a private detective played by Donald Sutherland on the trail of a missing person, uh, and he's reluctantly aided by a high-class cool girl played by Fonda. It's classic mainstream 70s cinema, uh, with the look and feel of the time aided by Gordon Willis's superb use of anamorphic lenses, and Michael Small's score isn't bad either, which is a very difficult sentence to say.
Michael Small's uh, theme, love theme from Clute, which, uh, do you see that very often now? I saw it not too long ago, and it, it pretty much holds up. It's quite kind of minimalist in a sort of a way. Don't think I ever saw it in the cinema, though. I do remember the poster being up. Hmm. Now, from uh, February 1972, saw The Go-Between play for the first time in Uckfield. Uh, it must have done well. I don't have the numbers because it's in that middle bit. There'll be less middly bits <laughs> as we go on. I think I've said this to you before, but it will get slightly more accurate the older I get through the 70s because, you know, let's face it, 10, you know. But, you know, it'll get more accurate. Well, not accurate. Accurate would be the wrong word. The memories might be more entertaining. <laughs> Uh, you know, and posh films have been a staple in Outfield and uh, the surrounding districts for many, many years, clearly. Um, wildly popular, actually, at the time. I looked up the critics. They went absolutely bonkers for it, many hailing it as uh, Joseph Losey's best film to date. Uh, set at the turn of the 20th century, it starred the current darlings in 1972, of British cinema, Judy Christie and Alan Bates. And the music uh, was by Michel Legrand. Michel Legrand's score for The Go-Between, Joseph Losey's wildly well-regarded film uh, from 1972, which is where we are at right now. And I'm going to take a break. Um, what's going to happen when we come back? Uh, ooh. 
quite a big one. Mrs. Kevin Markwick. He's more machine now than man. Twisted and evil. Happy to see you, blij the rest is Welcome and bienvenue, welcome in cabaret, oh cabaret to cabaret. Meine Damen und Herren, Mesdames et Messieurs, Ladies and Gentlemen, comment ça va? Do you feel good? Ich bin euer Konferencier. I am your host und sage Willkommen, Bienvenue, Willkommen im Kabarett, oh Kabarett, zu Kabarett. Leave your troubles outside. So, life is disappointing. Forget it. In here, life is beautiful. The girls are beautiful. Even the orchestra is beautiful. Stranger, 
Hallo, Stranger. Glücklich zu sehen, just wie son Chantin. Chantin, Happy to see you. Bleibe rechtes Ding. Wir sagen Willkommen, Jenny. Willkommen im Kabarett. Und Kabarett zu Kabarett. Joel Gray. And Willkommen from uh, Bob Fosse's wildly successful film of the Kanda and Ebb Broadway musical Cabaret, which actually, looking at the chart, which I've not really shared with you yet, that was the sixth highest grossing picture in the US that year. It was released in June 72 in the UK, but uh, I think you made a bit of a misjudgment there and it didn't play in Upfield until April the 3rd, 1973, and then only for five days. Now, looking through the book, it then appeared a lot more after that. I think the ex certificate must have frightened him off. Uh, he was always reticent about those outside of Sundays, more of which later. Uh, it took a fortune, however, uh, 1,257 admissions in five days. Now, bear in mind, this was uh, once nightly, so there would have been one performance at 8 o'clock at night. That was it. Uh, so it was basically filling our 300-seat single-screen cinema every night. Uh, very rare that happened, especially in news days. Uh, in many ways, the film is an improvement on the stage version as it cuts out a lot of the plot and focuses more on Sally Bowles. Uh, Fosse was the perfect director and choreographer to invoke the sleaze and the tinderbox atmosphere of Berlin as the Nazis start to seize power. It's actually a musical by stealth in that it doesn't really feel like a musical as songs are only performed to an audience at the Kit Kat Club. Uh, Fosse removed the subplot about the late flowering love of Bowles, Landlady and the old man that involved traditional musical style songs. And I think the film is subsequently tighter and more focused as a result. It won eight Oscars, including Best Director, Best Actress for Liza Minnelli and Supporting Actor for Joel Grey as the MC. Um, it ends with what is still one of the most chilling sequences in film history, as the sweet voice of a young boy floats over the outdoor cafe on a beautiful summer day. It then becomes apparent the dark nature of the boy in his song as he is revealed as a Hitler youth and gives the Nazi salute. The sun on the meadow is summer one. The stag in the forest runs free. But gather together to greet the storm. Tomorrow belongs to me. The branch of the linden is leafy and green. The rhyme gives its gold to the sea. But somewhere a glory of its unseen tomorrow belongs to me. Soon says a whisper of ice 
belongs to me from Cabaret 1972 uh, another 24 karat gold 70s classic now uh, released in the UK in March 1972 and we actually played it in 1972 I'm talking about uh, William Friedkin's The French Connection uh, it was an October 1971 release in the US uh, six months behind the US was about the norm then uh, a crime thriller about a cop in pursuit of a gentleman heroin smuggler. Uh, it also contains one of the greatest car chases of all time. Uh, Gene Hackman is Popeye Doyle, who has uh, echoes of Harry Callahan, but is presented in a much less glamorous style. In fact, the film has a much more dirty-looking, realistic style overall. Winning pretty much all the awards, including Oscars for Friedkin, Hackman and Roy Scheider as Best Supporting Actor, the brutal score... Uh, it was really interesting, it was by Don Ellis.
Subway, part of uh, Don Ellis's score for The French Connection. That's rather good stuff, is it not? Um, and perfectly captures that sort of chaotic, uh, mad feel that the film had. Um, so, violent cinema was a big thing in the early 70s. Going through these titles, I've noticed how violent a lot of the films were. Um, and surprisingly mainstream as well. Uh, and we'll come on to the most controversial of all later. One of the most famous exponents of violent cinema, though, was Sam Peckinpah. Um, one of his oddest films is The British Made Straw Dogs, uh, a divisive and violent film that featured Dustin Hoffman and Susan George, along with a raft of British character actors, including David Warner and Peter Vaughan. Set in a small Cornish village, Dustin Hoffman plays a mild-mannered academic who ends up having to violently protect his home from local thugs, having singularly failed to uh, protect his wife from rape earlier in the story. Uh, the music's by Jerry Fielding. That's uh, Jay Fielding's music from Straw Dogs, which uh, caused a bit of a fuss and ultimately uh, got kind of withdrawn probably by the 90s. It was uh, in the doghouse, probably quite rightly too. I think it's been reissued. It was remade. I haven't seen it. Um, the remake, I would imagine it's rather, rather insipid. Um, but it did play a lot, you know, it played a lot of times, um, often in a double feature, it was always quite popular, and I just, while that was on, I was just making a quick sort of jot down the number of films I could think of in the 70s that rather distressingly featured, 
strong or too strong rape scenes. And there was there was a lot of them. There was Death Wish, Draw Dogs, uh, Death Weekend, um, Lipstick, The Hunting Party, Soldier Blue. It was a it was a rather uh, sort of distressing theme of the time, I think, and I'm not entirely sure that it was done uh, for entirely the right reasons. Uh, now, more violence, uh, sadly. <laughs> Although um, a much more successful box office film. Uh, looking at the list here, uh, number f- the fifth biggest film in the U.S. in uh, 1972 was Deliverance, uh, whilst arguably equally unpleasant uh it did at least have a universal theme uh, that was challenging and i think it did actually have quite a lot to say uh, about notions of masculinity uh john borman's film starred john voigt burt reynolds ned Beatty, and ronnie cox as a group of men on a canoe trip down the river that's about to be flooded uh wiping away not just the river but the community of mountain people that live there uh their arrogant city sensibility upsets the locals who then kind of chase them down the river uh, follow them down the river and subject them to a terrifying ordeal uh, it uh, retains an awful lot of its power, it's a very well made film from British filmmaker um, John Borman uh, and of course who can forget uh, the Dueling Banjos <laughs>
cream. Now, now, now. Now's the time for ice cream. Now, now, now. Cool, cool ice cream. Now's the time for ice cream. Have some now. Nino Rota's iconic music from The Godfather. Uh, that was the main title. Now pretty much considered one of the best films ever made. Uh, would you believe The Godfather didn't play Uckfield until the 2000s uh, when I played it uh, for a one-day booking on digital DCP? Incredible. Now that may seem a bit bonkers to you, but let me explain. Um, there weren't quite the rules and regulations then that you have now over playing time and demands that the distributors can put on you. And um, now it's a it's uh, illegal for a distributor to insist on more than two weeks 
for a film booking. But in those days, those um, those restrictions didn't apply, and Paramount were very insistent that uh, when The Godfather came out, they wanted four weeks and they wanted 70% film hire. Now, um, with one screen to tie it up for four weeks and pay through the nose for the film hire just seemed like a bad idea to my dad. He didn't want to do that. And um, he always used to say that, you know, when they wanted four weeks for it, he didn't want to give them four weeks. And when they wanted, when he would have given them two weeks, they wanted three weeks. And then when he would have given them, you know, a week, they still wanted two weeks for it. So, because it was a big, big film at the time. Is it? I'm assuming it appears in the list of American top 10. Yeah, number one, $133 million, which, I mean, now would be a hit. So, um, even at, you know, $133 million, but it never played. Um, and that happened a few times over the years, uh, or at least stopped us from playing big films on the date, which were offered, actually. But uh, I'll tell you about them as they come up through the 70s, um, as we get to them, 75 and 77 particularly. Now, so much has been written about um, this amazing film, The Godfather, that I'm not sure I can what I can add, really. Uh, well, not with my daft brain. Um in terms of the 70s renaissance, it's interesting because Francis Coppola was the first of the new wave of young Americans to go big. Uh, he was a bit older than the other, his old mates like Lucas and Scorsese and De Palma and uh, uh, the like, uh, and acted as a bit of a father figure setting up Zoe Trope Studios, although The Godfather's made outside of that. Um, Robert Evans at Paramount engaged in the end with Coppola to make uh, The Godfather uh, because he kind of thought it would be best to have an Italian-American director, although they had gone after um, Sergio Leone to direct, but he was already working on his own mahusive gangster epic that ultimately became Once Upon a Time in America. As with all Coppola films, <laughs> the production was fraught with this, that and the other, but what he turned in you know, really is one of the most important films in uh, in world cinema, let alone American cinema. It's one of those moments in film history where everything comes together, either by accident or by design to create something perfect. Uh, the casting, Pacino um, as Michael, isn't he? Michael Corleone, uh, Brando as Vito Corleone, and Khan, James Khan as uh, Sonny Corleone. Corleone, I don't know, whatever, whatever. let's call the whole thing off. Uh, also, Gordon Willis's beautiful sort of mahogany-looking cinematography and, of course, Nino Rota's music. Uh, so we'll play you one more from that before we go from the sublime to the arguably also sublime...
Nino Rota's uh, love theme from The Godfather, a massive 1972 film that didn't play in Upfield until about 2004. But, you know, we got round to it eventually. That's the main thing. Don't say we don't show you everything um, eventually. Uh, so this is Kevin Mark. We're going through 1972 in my trawl through the 1970s, both from a sort of a um, global view, although not entirely global. I do apologise to the world cinema. We haven't really covered any world cinema. Uh, I didn't really come to Upfield World Cinema in those days. Not much anyway. Um, and also, yeah, from a worm's eye view of a provincial cinema, uh, growing up in a provincial cinema in the 1970s. You know, it was traumatic one way or another. Uh, so um, one of the things, so having gone through the history of why we didn't play The Godfather, what I'm also going to do is go through the history of the Sunday. You've heard me mention the Sunday one day thing or Sunday two days, how important Sundays was to us because it was the biggest day of the week. Anyway, um, I'm going to play this because we've got a double feature, Hands of the Ripper and um, Twins of Evil. Here we go. Here's Hands of the Ripper trailer. Between the 2nd of April, 1888, and September the 17th, 1889, a dreadful fear descended over the streets of London. No one who saw that face lived, except one small child whom he spared, because she was his own flesh and blood. There was another murder. They're looking for Jack the Ripper. It's you. records tell us that the Ripper killed nine times. Mrs. Golden. Now Hammer reveal how the curse lived on into a second generation of terror. Whoever impaled that unfortunate woman on this poker possessed immense physical strength. Anna is upstairs at this moment. She's what? Oh, Miss Anna, you're going to look lovely tonight. Damn it, Pritchard, you've got to possess being in your home as savage as any wild beast. <laughs> So there you go, that's the trailer for Hands of the Ripper, <laughs> which was actually really good. It was a good Hammer horror movie. Now, the reason Sundays were so important um, were because uh, we would have upwards of 300 missions on a Sunday with some of the most appalling tat. I think, you know, largely um, it was because there was nothing else to do in the town. I mean, there just wasn't. So all the Herberts, as my dad would call them, would uh, come and watch... Frank and Drac, or, uh, you know, uh, pretty much anything, actually, which is why he was petrified of not running two Sundays the same. So he always had to have a different Sunday. And um, I don't think I'm unusual. I, I don't know if other cinema owners are listening to this, uh, or certainly other cinema owners in um, quite so long in the tooth as me are listening, but um, I assume it was the same for everybody else. Um, that Sunday was so important because it was so busy. And, you know, generally you weren't paying through the nose for the film, are you? are paying 10 quid each for each of the features. Um, so it was really good. However, the upshot of which 
was I got the chance growing up to see some mental double features. Uh, they were generally horror or bikes or westerns or kung fu or that sort of thing. Um, anything that would appeal to the disaffected youth of Uckfield who really didn't have anything else to do on a Sunday. Um, some of the great doubles, I mean, I had a quick scroll through the book uh, from the 1970s include um, Dr. Terror's House of Horrors and the Mongols. I don't know. That was a terrible Italian film with Jack Palance and Anita Ekberg. Uh, Dr. Fibes Rises Again and Wild Angels. Pit in the Pendulum and Circus of Horrors. That's a great double feature. Uh, Superfly and King Boxer. So you've got black exploitation there. And um, Kung Fu. What a potent combination. Uh, one, one of the most interesting, Deathline and Night Hair Child. Now, Deathline was a rather good... Um, horror movie set on the London Underground with uh, Donald Pleasance. It's kind of really creepy um, and still really scary today. And Night Hair Child was the second feature, which was a very strange thing about a young boy played by Mark Lester. Remember Oliver having an affair with an older woman played by, um, oh, goodness, what's her name? Mrs. Um, ah, Mrs. Rod Stewart. <laughs> was it her? I think it was. Um, and there was uh, oh, King Boxer again with Easy Rider. Easy Rider was always playing. Um, motorbikes, you see. Motorbikes, they love motorbikes. Plague of the Zombies and Scream and Scream Again. Uh, Way of the Dragon and The Hard Ride. That was quite good. That was a Harley Davidson picture. Uh, well, it wasn't a Harley Davidson picture. It was a picture that featured Harley Davidson's. Uh, Angels from Hell and The Vampire Lovers. Um, the list is frankly endless, actually. Uh, one of my favourites was the Satanic Rites of Dracula and Blackula, which my, I remember my dad billing as the All Bloodsuckers show, <laughs> which tickled him enormously. Uh, he didn't really let go of Sunday One Days, actually, until the mid-80s, I would say. Uh, so they were still sort of turning up occasionally. And Hands of the Ripper was actually one of the most fondly remembered Hammer horrors. Uh, it seemed to cut above the normal with stylish sets and photography and solid acting from Eric Porter and Angra had Reese. Remember her from Poldark as the daughter of Jack the Ripper who murders her way through other cast members. Um, I seem to remember she's set off by things that glint in the fire, like when her dad came to see her when she was in her cot. Um, I was going to play some music, but actually I've run completely out of time to run that, so what I'm going to have to do is do a break, and when we come back we'll do the second half of the double feature. Ladies and gentlemen, did you know that Sunquash, your favourite orange drink, is in this cinema now? It's in a lovely container you can see through. So you know when it's time to buy some more. Ha-ha! Sunquash is on sale now! Monday evenings on Uckfield FM with Cafe 212 at the top of Uckfield High Street. The new Mediterranean-style cafe with a bit of everything. Call 760-212 for details. FSK is a premier school for karate and kickboxing. We have established clubs in Uckfield, Heathfield and Crowborough, open to all ages and abilities. Find out more at fsk-karate.info or call Paul on 01273 702 Do you want to learn more about hip or knee replacement? The Horder Centre is a centre of excellence for orthopaedic treatment and surgery. We're currently holding free information events on hip and knee replacements and joint pain, all presented by clinical experts at our centre in Crowborough. For further details and to book your place, please visit horderhealthcare.co.uk. The Horder Centre. Outstanding orthopaedics. Were you aware of the new apprenticeship levy rules? Do you know if this will affect your company? 
If you have a total payroll bill over £3 million per year, for your company or all of your connected companies within your group, you will be affected by the new apprenticeship levy. If you would like advice or need help with the new apprenticeship levy rules, contact Pay Assist. Based in Uckfield, our friendly team has extensive experience in payroll and are ready to help you. Call Julie on Uckfield 746 877. That's Pay Assist on 746 877. Kevin Markwick. 105 Uckfield FM. You think he's gone? He's not gone. That's the whole point. He's never gone. Mercy on this poor, unfortunate creature. In old Gothic Europe, they had two burning passions. Witch hunting and devil worship. Practice the black arts. Worship the devil. They're all slaves to Count Konstein, and he is their evil master. Do you know what I want more than anything else? To meet Count Konstein. <gasps> yeah, Count Kamstein. They look alike. They dress alike. Two identical beauties. They were a pair of beauties, I have to say. For you, all pleasure should be supreme. These are the men they call the Brotherhood. Seek out the devil worshippers. So that's the trailer for Twins of Evil, which was the feature in the double feature, uh, Twins of Evil and Hands of the Ripper. Now, you know how I know it was a feature? Because it's on the left-hand side of the poster, on the double feature poster... Uh, the one on the left was always the feature. Now, do we even use the word feature now? Does it mean it? Hey, young people out there, does the word feature mean it? You know, it's the feature film. Does it mean anything to you? It meant it was the film that was more important than the other film that came before it. Uh, and sometimes you paid more for the feature than you paid for the second feature. So there was a difference between a second feature and a double feature. A second feature meant that, um, you know, uh, it wasn't such a big film or often, I mean... But going back before the 70s, they were uh, B-movies, which were specifically designed to be second features. Um, but I digress. Now, I, you know, I wouldn't even know how to book a double feature anymore. I'm not sure how you do it, because we have to pay this sort of minimum guarantee these days for each film. It's like 150 quid or whatever it is. So if you suggested to a distributor, can I book a double feature? I think they'd look at you like you're insane. They wouldn't know how to do it. It wouldn't fit in the computer thing. I don't know, what is it? How do I do it? And actually, when we've done double features, people don't know how to pay for them either. <laughs> do I have to pay twice? No, it's a double feature. You get two films for the price of one. Um, yeah, so Twins of Evil was much more straightforward sex and gore hammer fair, uh, featuring real-life twins Mary and Madeline Collinson, who also happened to be Playboy Playmates. It was actually the third part of a lesbian vampire trilogy called the Camstein Trilogy uh, that started with the Vampire Lovers in 1970 and then Lust for a Vampire in 1971, although Twins of Evil features next to no lesbian themes at all. Um, it has all the things you want from a hammer horror. Uh, it's a period piece with see-through negligees, heaving bosoms, pointy teeth and Peter Cushing. Uh, it played on Sunday, May the 14th, 1972. I don't have any numbers, but I do have some of the score by Harry Robertson. <laughs> Thank you. 
Harry Robinson's score for Twins of Evil from 1972, which is what we're talking about. It's quite interesting, actually, really. When you, I mean, some of these are amazing films, really. Godfather, um, Please Sir, no, that doesn't count. Um, French Connection, Deliverance, you know, I don't know. So why are admissions drastically dropping like this? Was it because cinemas were terrible places to go? Could well have been that as well, or was it a combination of things, or were people's appetite for cinema not quite so, um, you know, they weren't quite so into it? It's quite interesting. Um, I, I sort of know why. I mean, a lot of it had to, well, British cinema obviously was rubbish at the time, apart from Ken Russell and some Nick Rogue. Um, but uh, cinemas were getting in a bit of a state. What had happened was with that, with underinvestment, and then they started carving them up into these horrible sort of orange painted boxes. Your ABC in the town centre or your Odeon in the town centre was generally a pretty neglected, appalling place to go, which is really why when the Americans came along in 84, it started to sort of turn the other way. Um, right, so what next? I mean, tell me what you think. Let me know if you've got an opinion on this. If you were going to the cinema in the 70s, is that why... Why that happened, I'm pretty sure that's what it is. But uh, and Or just get in contact with the show and let us know what you think at Kevin Markwick on Twitter. You can even uh, email the studio at FM, studio at arcfieldfm.co.uk. Uh, you can find my email address, let me know. And if you're listening to the podcast, thanks for listening to that as well. Um, it'd be good to hear from you also um, on how you're getting on and what your memories of the 70s or, or not are. That would be good too. So, which brings us on pretty much to the last film, I would think. I might be able to squeeze another one in, Matron, before the end. Um, oh, I do like a, double, a good double entendre, don't you? Always try and slip one in. Um, another 24-carat gold classic uh, from 1972, uh, Stanley Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange. There was me, that is, Alex, and my three droogs. That is Pete, Georgie and Dim. Dim being really dim. And we sat in the Corova milk bar trying to make up our Razudocs what to do with the evening. Now the Corova milk bar sold Milk Plus. Milk Plus Velocet, Synthonesque or Drencrum, which is what we were drinking. This would sharpen you up and make you ready for a bit of the old ultraviolence. I'm 
So, a clockwork orange with this kind of electronic and Ode to Joy by Beethoven, bit of the old Ludwig van. At the top of that, you heard um, it was actually a recreation of his original speech by Malcolm McDowell in Miguti Woods. Released in February 1972. A Clockwork Orange remains as controversial today, I think, does it? Yes, as it was then. Based on the book by Anthony Burgess and set in a dystopian future, it tells the story of Alex, the leader of the Gang of Droogs, a violent gang who find themselves getting into increasingly violent activity that uh, ultimately ends in murder. is then rehabilitated is that right rehabilitated it's easy for you to say by the system using arguably equally violent aversion therapy like all Kubrick films it's dense and packed with all sorts of stuff that you must stuff that's an academic way of putting it isn't it yeah so I believe it's packed with stuff Kevin this is what academics believe all Kubrick films to be packed with staff. Anyway, this is how Kubrick described the film. I don't, I can't do a Stanley Kubrick impression. Did anybody ever done a Stanley Kubrick impression? A social satire dealing with the question of whether behavioural psychology and psychological conditioning are dangerous new weapons for a totalitarian government to use to impose vast controls on its citizens and turn them into little more than robots. You see, stuff. After having been a major success in the US, the film was released early in 1972 in the UK and would then become a target of accusations of copycat violence. Uh, Kubrick became so cheesed off with this that he asked Warner Brothers to withdraw the film. Um, it was never banned. Some people thought it was banned. It wasn't. It was just Kubrick said, you know what, if you can't play nicely, then I'm just going to take it away from you. Uh, and it wasn't generally available, actually, until after Kubrick's death in 1999. It became a bit of a thing. You know, ooh, I think it was the Scala, wasn't it? Got terribly got sued by Warner Brothers for playing a, a piratey, a piratey styly copy of uh, Clockwork Orange in London in about, I don't know, 1980-something. Um, it's a dazzling piece of cinema with an unforgettable central performance by Malcolm McDowell as Alex. Uh, and it didn't actually play outfield until June 1973, only a few weeks before it was uh, withdrawn. 
Maybe the ex-certificate was scaring them off. I don't know, but it did okay. 988 admissions in seven days. It took £408.55. As usual, Kubrick's use of music was a collective and sublime. So we've had the electronic version of Ode to Joy. Uh, we'll have a bit of a break. I don't know why I said it in that voice. We will have a bit of a break. And then um, I think we'll sort of finish off with a bit of Rossini. Is that all right with you lot? Yeah. Hot taste, thrills in one. Top and top Sunday, it's new. Crispy hazelnuts, milky chalk. Then dairy ice cream. And a super center with a toffee taste. Top and top Sunday. On sale now. Kubrick using um, Thieving Magpie in uh, to dramatic effect in A Clockwork Orange from 1972, which is the year we have been looking at tonight. And actually, I was kind of, yeah, looking back on it, it wasn't so bad, was it? So films we've missed out. Fritz the Cat. We may come back to that one later. Uh, the Getaway. That was interesting. Watched that again the other night. Steve McQueen. Uh, let's have a look. What else we got here? Play again. Sam. Love Story finally played. We did that in the first show like three weeks ago. Ryan's Daughter. I feel bad about missing out Ryan's Daughter. That was another one of those 70 mil, ooh, will it ever arrive films. And I sense you may get bored with that story. And there's a film called Behind the Green Door, which I have no idea what that is. It was the number four film in the US. It wasn't a Rudy film, was it? I think it might have been a Rudy film. I'm going to look it up. What's That Duck, which you mentioned before, was the number three film, and the number two film was The Poseidon Adventure. This is in the US, remember. But that wasn't released until 1973 in the UK. So we're not allowed to talk about that. Because we'll talk about it next week. Because it's one of my favourites. Anyway, do get in touch uh, at Kevin Markwick on Twitter and all sorts of other ways. Hello, podcasters. That's for you. Thank you, sir. And I'm going to leave you with the rest of Rossini, about 40 seconds worth, and I'll see you next week for 1973. Goodbye, good night, and I love you all.